Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews Podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? Well, let me tell you what's happened to me. So my son is really into his music, it's fair to say. Still at school, but has big dreams, big hopes. And he decided with the help of his school to write his first song. Very exciting. And the school got him in a recording studio. I mean, it's unbelievable, really. And they were doing it for a few of the students, got them in a recording studio that they built and then got them to do a live performance of this song. And we were invited as parents to go along. And I'd heard bits of the song before, but wasn't really aware of everything because all the rehearsals had happened at school, not at home. So if you picture the scene, I'm sitting there... Uh, listening to all these songs, incredible songs, clapping away, hurrah, hurrah. And then my son gets up to sing his song and it's called Help, Help! Exclamation mark. Not just help, help! Exclamation mark. And to summarise, the song is about how he, as a child, was left in a playground in a park and he was left on his own and no one would help him. And he would shout and beg for somebody to notice him, somebody to help, and nobody is. And that was the start of the song, and it got even darker after that. Let me tell you, everybody turned around and looked at me as if to say, right, well, at least we know you're you're the person that leaves their child in the park. No, I wanted to stand up at the end and say, I have never left either of my children in a park or anywhere on their own. They might wish that I had because I was probably the opposite, (laughs) their clingy mother. But no, I have never left my child anywhere. And then the music teacher tells me that this song is being sent off to the radio to play. Now, I am thrilled. I'm thrilled for all the students that they get their songs done and sent off and all of this tra-la-la. <laughs> I just, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to write my own song, I think, for the B-side. Do they still have B-sides of singles? I don't know about how 
uh, <laughs> as a parent, I never left my child alone. Everyone is going to think that because all the other songs the students did, one did one about how they found someone that they love. One found one sang a song about how they thought they love someone and they don't. Someone else was about, oh, why does no one like me? You know, all these sort of things. And as you're listening to the lyrics, you're sitting there going, oh, yeah, that's that's really sad or isn't that nice? And really assuming that the words of the song align with the individual. So, you know, everyone, what, what, what is going on? I have entered a parallel universe of craziness. But anyway, there we are. So that's where we are today. I may have to hire a solicitor or Simon Cowell to help me deal with this. If you hear about entitled Perfect Parenting, then you will know that it's my attempt to salvage the situation. But enough about me. Let's talk about the books we've got today because we've got some crackers for you, some really different ones as well, which is great. So first of all, we've got Scoops by Sam McAllister. And Sam is the producer on Newsnight who was involved with the setting up of the Prince Andrew interview. Need I say more? Well, yes, I do need to say more because there's a whole book about it, but we'll come on to that. And Sam is going to join us and tell us about that book. Then we've got All Her Little Lies by Becca Day. And Becca's going to come on and talk to us about that book. Then I'm also going to tell you about Annie Stanley All at Sea by Sue Tedden. I'm a fan by Sheena Patel and Aquicorn Cove by Katie O'Neill. One book I bought, which I thought was a different book, and it turned out I got the wrong one. But more on that later. Hey-ho, let's deal with scoops first of all. Now, let's read the blurb of this one. Sam McAllister is the woman who clinched the 2019 interview with Prince Andrew, described as a plane crashing into an oil tanker, causing a tsunami, triggering a nuclear explosion. She has many things beside the first in her family to go to university, a trained barrister, a single mum, a master of persuasion. In her former BBC colleague's words, she was the booker extraordinaire, responsible for many of Newsnight's exclusives over the past decade, including Stormy Daniels, Sean Spicer, Bridget Hoss, Stephen Seagal, Mel Grieg and Julian Assange. After 12 years producing content for Newsnight, McAllister reflects with candour on her experience, sharing not just the secrets of how the best news gets made, but also the changes to the BBC, the future of mainstream media in the age of clickbait and the role of power and privilege in shaping our media landscape. This is a backstage pass to the most unforgettable journalism of our times. And let's hear from Sam, who's going to read a little bit for us. Relentless. I've heard this word a lot. It's a moniker of admiration, confusion, and sometimes of abuse or ridicule. And it perfectly sums up who I am and what I do. I'm not sure when or how it started, but I live to get the story, to beat the world's media, to go first and preferably exclusively. News takes many forms and I don't discriminate. I've tracked down world leaders for their first interviews on the job, those on the brink of reputational ruin, and people who have everything, maybe even their life, to lose. Over the years, the desire to win has only grown. It has crept into every dinner, every party, every new acquaintance, every relationship, every business meeting. 
every single encounter would allow me to build a crucial network to get myself into a position where I, someone who arrived in journalism with no connections, no credentials, and dare I say, no credibility, could access virtually anyone in the world. Guys, I really enjoyed this book. It was easy to read. It's broken down into manageable chapters, each on a different interview that's been set up and the process behind it. It lifts a lid onto what goes on. It really does. And it's going to be made into an old Netflix show. So more on that. But yeah, I just thought it was well written, of its time, thought provoking. And there are well, I was going to say there are at least 10 people I can think of that would want to read this straight away. More than 10, actually. Many. So it's hopefully, if you know me, you won't be listening to this podcast so that you can have these for birthday presents. But yeah, I think it's good. And if you're a book club and you're looking for a non-fiction book, this could be an interesting one because there's lots. It pulls people from royal family, politics, celebrities so whatever your niche is there might be something that appeals and attracts but enough of me let's go and talk to Sam now. Well it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast today Sam McAllister whose brilliant breathtaking book is Scoops. Sam welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me Philippa lovely to see you. Well can we let's start with the real basics can you summarize this book for us? Absolutely. Well, the denouement of this book is the negotiation that I conducted with Prince Andrew in Buckingham Palace that led to that very famous, world-changing, life-changing, royal family-changing interview. But the backstory is what this book provides. It provides you the backstory on how that came about, but also on my career where I was lucky enough to try and vie for content for BBC Newsnight with global leaders and comedians and politicians and sometimes, you know, actual real people like you and me. So a real smorgasbord of the behind the scenes that really is never heard about, written about or spoken about. So I hope revealing, interesting, challenging and sometimes even funny. It sounded to me, it, when I read it, it's almost like fiction because you can't believe some of it. And yet it is absolutely accurate and what happened? Why, why write it now? Why this time? Well, I think it's a couple of reasons. I mean, the first one is a slightly pretentious one, which is that this was a moment in our country's history, this particular interview with Prince Andrew. And I wanted to consign, if you like, to a future researcher on a future series of The Crown or on a PhD about the decline of the monarchy, who would be able to actually literally find what happened because it wasn't in the public domain. So the producer tends to really be in the kind of background. That's traditionally how it's been. And I think we're on the cusp of a different situation where people are wanting to know exactly what happened with their news, their current affairs, and of course, with historical events. So it's a marrying, if you like, of my desire to just tell people how the interview came about from my point of view, obviously, and due to the fact that I was the one largely alone working on this for almost a year before others did become involved, and also to lift the lid, if you like, on the mysterious world of news journalism in our pervasive kind of time of truth and authenticity and openness. So those two things really motivated me. 
And what the book showed me is that you you have to go out and grab opportunities. And if the opportunities aren't there, you have to make the opportunities. Did you really feel that as you were going along or just on reflection did that come to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a bun fight in news journalism getting content. I think people just think that somebody kind of wafts in or rings up and people say, yes, I'd love to join you. That would be a delight. In truth, it's the polar opposite, particularly on somewhere like Newsnight, where the stakes are high, the risks are high, and the possible detriment to your reputation, your company, your country, your career is really huge. So it really was a matter of always constantly having to go out there and try and get content either formally through the formal channels or informally with any poor person at some social event who might have some kind of standing who happened to stand next to me when they're trying to get a drink. So it really was, yeah, going out there and going for it and getting it in that competition for content was absolutely crucial to my success. And you describe various interviews in the book that you were involved with from Julian Assange, Stephen Seagal, and of course, the Prince Andrew interview that, that you've mentioned. There must have been so many to choose from. Was it quite hard to select which ones you were going to put in the book? Yeah, it really was. I must admit the book came around after I just uh, was kind of slightly delirious and not sleeping one Sunday and made one of those sort of fraught lists that you make, you know, in your phone. And I listed all my favourite interviews. I think there were about 20. And then by the time I got to the book proposal, I realised that about four of them had about 10 words to be said on them. So they had to be culled. That was a simple solution. <laughs> but in the end, I wanted to make sure there was a mix of each chapter telling you something about me, of course, but I'm the least important part of the book, something about the BBC and the nature of journalism, and most importantly, something about the interviewee, their motivations, the content of their interviews, the things that their words told us about them and about the world. So it's those three things that I was interested in trying to show throughout this little tome. And since you have went through those experiences of setting up all those interviews and then writing the book, the BBC itself has gone through some changes. Do you think things would be different now or how would that be affected? Yeah, I think, you know, that the BBC is going through a tumultuous time, but it's felt like a tumultuous time for the past decade that I was there and Unfortunately, you know, the nature of media is changing. Uh, fortunately, if you like the modern take on media lifestyle and the way that things are done. But for those of us who are, you know, dinosaurs of the media world, like my good self, who love a 10 or 15 or 20 minute intricate interview with challenging questions, I think, you know, it's really going to be harder and harder to find that kind of content. So it was already difficult when I was there. And unfortunately, I think things will only get more and difficult every single year. And I'm interested because when you got the idea for the book and you said you were sitting there and putting on your phone the interviews that resonated the most with you, in some ways you, it might, you might think, oh gosh, this is going to be quite easy to write. But when it actually came to it, was it easy to do or was it quite hard to commit everything to paper? Yeah, well, I was relying on my memory, which is also uh, interesting. My background's criminal defence barrister, so I'm really lucky I have a very good memory. I think, in truth, it was a big ask. I had never even written an article before other than a legal opinion. So being asked to do seventy to 80,000 words and first draft was expected in three months, 
definitely was challenging, but I expect a lot of authors have said the same thing. In a sense, it's the thinking first, which I would do in a swimming pool or whilst having a gin, as the case may be, <laughs> and just getting some stuff down to begin with. And then I really, I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie. Of course, it was a hard, arduous, unexpected and completely new thing that I'd never done before in my life. Uh, but I mostly really enjoyed it. And once I got going, I was fine. But getting going, oh my goodness, that was definitely the hard part. Has it made you want to write again or has it put you off? It's definitely made me want to write again. I think, you know, I started this with no pretensions that I was going to be willing a Nobel Prize or that I'm, you know, the next great kind of like novelist. It's nonfiction and it's telling a story of my life. But I have really enjoyed engaging with people and telling them stories that they found interesting. And I've had, really luckily, a very positive and stellar response from strangers on the street who've read the book or people who write to me on social media. And obviously, it's hugely impacted and changed my life being able to do this book. So I enjoy communicating. And if the written word is a way to do that, then I certainly enjoy and intend to maybe try it one more time for the book. <laughs> and can we mention the word Netflix? Because there is some fabulously exciting news. Yeah, of course you can. I, I mean, you know, I'm the luckiest woman alive who writes their first book and then finds out that it's been optioned for a Netflix movie. Well, I'm that lucky one in a billion. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm going to be played by Billy Piper, uh, wearing a wig. For those you can't see, but there's a lot of blonde curls. And so Billy has lots of blonde curls in a wig. And then Gillian Anderson's playing Emily Maitlis. Keely Hawes is playing Amanda Thirst, the private secretary to Prince Andrew. And Prince Andrew is being played by the incredible Rufus Sewell. So... It really is mind-blowing, but you're absolutely right. A Netflix movie is coming as a result of this little book. So when will we be able to see this? Is there an actual date of when we can sit there with our popcorn? There is not a date yet, but there will be popcorn, I hope, Philippa. And I hope you enjoy it when it comes out. I'm really excited about it. It's just an incredible project to be involved in. But the book is also, as you say, about you, a parent, a single parent raising your child. There's a lot that you have to go through. And were you able to sort of reflect on that personal journey as well as your career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that a lot of people do when they write a, a book about their professional life is they just talk about their professional life. Now, of course, things are usually more complicated than that. And so, you know, I love being a single parent. It's kind of a strange term, isn't it? Because I was never really single, but I was always a parent. Uh, <laughs> but I wasn't with the father of my child. Yeah. And I just think, you know, it's sometimes refreshing just to hear about ordinary human interactions. You know, I'd be on the bus, I'd be harassed, I'd be stressed, I'd have forgotten some Weetabix, you know, the cats escaped, I need new cat litter. And then next minute... I have to go to Buckingham Palace and negotiate with, uh, you know, Amanda Thirsk or Prince Andrew with my deputy editor and my amazing presenter by my side. So the contrast of our private life and our professional life is sometimes hidden by people, I think, for fear of being judged. But I feel no such fear. So I think it's nice for people to know more about me while they're having that conversation with me that my book is having with them. And you mentioned the negotiations for a big interview. Obviously, there's a lot involved before you're sitting down and the camera is recording that interview. 
I'm interested when you got the sort of feels, when you thought this is dynamite, was it I mean, not just with the Prince Andrew interview, but was it actually when words were being spoken and you couldn't believe what was being said? Or were there other moments when you thought, oh, this could be something? Yeah, I mean, usually what happens is that you're sitting there as a producer with, uh, in my case, old school pen and paper and sort of writing down notes of what sections of the interview you think are going to be good enough, effectively, to be broadcast, which bits are the best, which are the headlines, which are newsmaking. That's kind of your, your job to do that. But often it's a bit of an uphill struggle. You know, you're kind of poised with your pen, waiting to circle something or star something or underline something that's going to be great. And sometimes you have a long, long wait. Sometimes everything is dynamite or interesting or might potentially make news. And then one in a million is something like the Prince Andrew interview, where every single word he says, you're just thinking, oh, my Lord, this is absolute dynamite. So Sometimes you just sit there waiting and nothing ever comes. And sometimes you sit there and it's just relentless, extraordinary content. And you just don't really know until they start speaking. And what was unbelievable and yet also believable was that that at no point did he question what he was saying. And at no point in that interview did his team sit up and, and try and intervene. Yeah, I mean, intervening is a real problem in interviews because... Obviously, as a producer, you're praying it doesn't happen. It does happen now and again. It is quite rare. And I think in these circumstances, once he decided to start, he was certainly going to finish for better or worse. But absolutely, it was a bit of a force of nature interview. Once the camera started rolling, whatever training he may have received, whatever advice he may have received, whatever instruction he may have been told, He was very much clearly his own man in terms of providing the answers that he provided. And it just felt that there was nothing that could really stop him other than perhaps somebody, you know, sort of like pretending to faint or something, which uh, didn't happen. But I'm not to say that I would be above that if the tables had been turned. And do you think that comes from a, a conceit that your view is the right view? Or was it just a story wanting and needing to be told? It's usually both, to be honest. I mean, in truth, no one thinks they're going to do a bad interview. The premise, you know, for most people is a certain level of confidence if they've agreed to participate, unless they're extremely reluctant, which sometimes happens. And I think probably he thought he was giving good answers. Something that is interesting about this interview is whether or not you believe everything that he says, you can tell he's being open, he's being disarmingly open. And that's extremely rare in interviews. So in a sense, he was getting everything off of his chest. It didn't go well for him, but there was a scenario in which if he'd had credible answers and plausible explanations, and obviously he still refutes that he's done anything wrong, so he truly believes that he has not committed any kinds of crimes, it was plausible that those answers could have given him a way out, if you like, of this dark cloud that's followed him because of his association with Jeffrey Epstein and the allegations against him. But It just made the cloud a lot, lot darker. In the book, you say it takes a lot to intimidate me. And that really resonated because I do struggle with the word resilience. And you seem to have it 
in bucket loads. How did you get to that point? How did you get yourself to be that resilient? Yeah, I think it's nature and nurture, isn't it? I was very lucky to have sort of, you know, two loving, supportive parents. Uh, sometimes things are a bit haphazard, as you'll read in the in the book about my kind of like my life as a child moving from place to place. But I was just kind of taught that wonderful confidence and that unconditional love that makes you really you know, believe in yourself and not question yourself in the ways that others do. I think also I don't have unrealistic ideas about what resilience or fortitude is. It doesn't mean that things don't hurt you or upset you or throw you off kilter. It just means that the way you deal with them is different. So I feel the same level of frustration or anger or pain or sadness when there's disappointment or bad things happen to me. But I'm able to, you know, shout at them, have a couple of gins, cry for an hour, whatever it takes, and then do that discipline of saying, well, it's not going to make any difference if I spend the next six months of my life whining or being upset about this. It's actually going to be disadvantageous to me. So I've just always been taught to, sure, let it out, but then get on with it. And that's nature and nurture. I was very lucky to have that as the way that my mum brought me up. Yeah, I need I need more resilience. I need to channel you more, Sam, I think. Would you go back to Newsnight if they begged you on bended knee? <laughs> I don't think they will after this. <laughs> you never know. Fresh thinking. Oh, I'm definitely fresh thinking. Oh, look, they're a wonderful group of people and it was an amazing thing. I was an experienced billionaire working there, but it feels like a long time ago now. And obviously, I'm very lucky I've got the book and a future book probably in the offing and I do speeches around the world talking about negotiation and the things that I've learned. So I'm, uh, I think I'm on a different path. So I don't think the phone's going to be ringing in any event. I think they're completely fine without me, <laughs> Philippa. But yeah, you know, absolutely. It was an incredible place to work. And if your son Lucas said to you when he's a bit older, I want to go into news, what would your reaction be? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a fascinating arena. I don't know what news will look like. My son's 16 by the time he goes into the workforce. But I just think that at its core, what people are trying to do is tell the truth, hold power to account, and obviously do things that really matter to be pretentious momentarily in a, in a democracy, you know, freedom of speech, challenging people, making sure that they're telling the truth, doing all of those things that really are the backbone of making sure that people have access to proper, correct and tested information. So if he wants to go into news, I'm all behind him, but I'm sure uh, he'll find something completely different that he wants to do to stay away from me giving him uh, my advice. <laughs> <laughs> when the interviews were being prepared, presumably, you know, that the game is always to ask a few gentle questions. But was there always a numbered question like question four or five that started that you wanted to be the real hitter? It just depends on the presenter, to be honest. Everyone has a different style. And some presenters like to have, you know, a lot of producer input or need a lot of producer input. And some like Jeremy Paxman, for example, don't need basically any producer input and you were kind of surplus to requirement other than sort of fact checking. But the truth is that as a producer on a programme like Newsnight, you'd be putting together a brief. And in that brief for the presenter, there would be questions. Sometimes he or she would use those questions, but 
I was taught that you're looking for kind of like the silver bullet question. You're looking for the question that will make some news. And so the arc of the briefs that I used to do was to try and find a denouement of some kind, whether it was accountability or showing that you had misled people or humour or something unforgettable. Trying to get something that everyone would be talking about the next day is the curve of those questions. But ultimately, obviously, in the studio, the presenter might need to take another tack, depending upon what the interviewee has said. But yes, those magic moments of television were definitely what I was trying to achieve when I was doing brief presenters in my career. And you've mentioned book two. Can you tell us anything about it? <gasps> Lip sealed. Aww. Philippa, how naughty. We won't tell anyone. <laughs> you won't tell anyone. Yes, I'm, I'm hoping. You never know, of course. So, as we know, it's an industry in which lots of procedures have to be got through if, for me to be lucky enough to write book two. But fingers crossed. You never know. Watch this space. Okay, we'll watch this later. Well, we come to the last question, which is the most crucial one. And I don't know how often this question was asked on Newsnight, but Sam, what is your biscuit of choice? What biscuit was powering the writing of Scoops? (laughs) Well, biscuits aren't really my thing, Philippa. I'm glad you didn't ask me at the beginning because I know you're a great biscuit lover. But I would think the thing that was probably powering Scoops was coffee. A lot of coffee with a lot of sugar in it, probably not much coffee at all. So maybe like a coffee biscuit um, in the sense that it was just sugar uh, with a lot of milk (laughs) and about like 1% coffee. But yes, powered by caffeine all the way. Fair enough. So no biscuits in sight. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm not a biscuit person. Gosh, this is serious stuff. I'm so sorry. I do like a Nutella dip, you know, those Nutellas that you dip like kind of like little sticks of something in. But Definitely doesn't qualify as a biscuit. So I'm really sorry to have disappointed you at the last hurdle, Philip. I hope we can still be friends. Well, you know, Sam, I had you high up there on the pedestal and you just come <laughs> crashing down. I, I don't know. Cancel the Netflix <laughs> film now. You know, this is this is it. We can't cope. Well, I could have lied to you, you see, but I didn't. I tell, told the truth, as always. It's always always been my problem. So, yeah, sorry about the whole biscuit situation. But I know we both like gin, so at least we have that in common. <laughs> absolutely well it's just been wonderful to talk to you and hear more about this incredible book sam McAllister, whose book is called scoops thank you so very much thank you philippa lovely to speak to you coming up one more author interview and more book reviews hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So next on the podcast this week, we have All Her Little Lies by Becca Day. Let's do the blurb on this one. Cynthia and Alex have always been like sisters, living and working for years on Cynthia's mother's sprawling farm. They've raised their families together. It was a perfect life until the fateful night that Alex finds Hannah, one of Cynthia's 18-year-old twins, inexplicably murdered in her own home. Soon, Alex's life is spiralling out of control as she questions everything she knows and everyone she trusted. And when local detective Stephanie Warner starts investigating Hannah's murder, one prime suspect quickly rises to the fore, Daniel, Alex's 19-year-old son. As Alex fights to protect him, she starts to uncover disturbing truths. Friendship, family bonds, even her own marriage are not what she thought and threats seem to come from every direction, both invisible and way too close to home. Well, there we are. So what is this book? It is, it's a psychological thriller and a psychological thriller, sorry, just removing a post-it note there, live, live post-it note removing. You know, this is, this is the stuff of legends, isn't it? Yeah, it's a typical psychological thriller. It's a, it's a great, psychological thriller it's got the crime element the sort of psychological element the who done it the why done it i thought it was well written feisty good quality and yeah if you are into why do i keep saying psychological thrillers if we were doing shots every time i said that we would be enjoying ourselves wouldn't we uh, so if psychological <laughs> thrillers last time saying that are your bag then i think you would really enjoy this as well worth a read but let's hear from becca who's going to read the first few sentences for us prologue alex it sounds like i'm underwater there's a rushing in my ears and the distinct sense of them needing to pop i suck in a breath and realize i'm not underwater i'm wading out of a deep sleep my senses slowly returning to me the high-pitched screech of pigs echoes through the barn it's the only way i can tell where i am that and the sharp bite of manure. But I can't see anything yet. My eyes are still firmly clamped shut, and no matter how hard I struggle to open them, I can't quite manage it. Very good. Well, let's talk to Becca and find out more about this book. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome today Becca Day, who's here to tell us all about her book, which is called All Her Little Lies. Becca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Philippa. I've been listening for a long time, so I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> You've been very patiently waiting to come on. I think <laughs> it's months and months and months. But finally, we get to this day and let's start off with a basic question. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, absolutely. So All Her Little Lies is a psychological thriller and it follows a woman called Alex who lives and works on a farm 
and she discovers a dead body and then for reasons to be revealed she decides to clean up the crime scene and get rid of all of the evidence and it kind of follows her and why she chose to do that and the sort of fallout from that. And I have to ask, how did you get the idea for this and then turn it into a book? So I just had that one scene actually in my head right from the beginning, which was her, this woman stumbling across the dead body. And then instead of doing the thing that you would expect them to do, which is ring the police, deciding instead to clean up the crime scene. Mm. And then that begged the question, why would someone do that? So the whole story kind of came out of that. And then the the farm element kind of came separately because when I was drafting it, I was staying at my husband's uncle's farm. And so it was just, it was very much inspiration from where I was at the time that I was drafting it. So yeah, it all came, came together from that. So when you go away to stay somewhere, are you like looking around going, hmm? I can use this in my next book. Constantly, constantly. Everywhere I go, I'm like, oh, this would be a good setting for a book. (laughs) And you mentioned how that initial scene was in your mind. How do you know when an idea, an initial scene is strong enough to become a book? So I spend a long time thinking about a story before I put any words on paper. So I will think about it in the shower when I'm doing a dog walk and I'll just start I'll take that seed of an idea and just start adding to it and it kind of plays out like a film in my head and if I can think up enough scenes that would go around it and I can think of a strong sort of beginning middle and end then I know that I've probably got something that could turn into a full-length novel and I can from that point start plotting it out and really coming up with a structure but it's I spend a long time like months thinking about it before I do any kind of plotting. So did you always know exactly how it would end or did that actually change as you were writing it? I always know how it's going to end when I'm writing my book so I kind of my process has changed over the years that I've been writing so my first book I plotted it really intricately and then this one I kind of plotted out the first half and then the second half I kind of pantsed it and like made it up as I went along but I knew how it was going to end. And I always have to have the ending in mind um, because I need to know where I'm heading. My third book, I made it up pretty much constantly the whole way through and even the ending changed at the last minute. So uh, that was a very different experience altogether. And I probably wouldn't do it again. I do actually prefer having an outline. I've been experimenting with different ways and, and trying to figure out what works for me. But I do always have to know the ending. So with this book, then you were mixing up the plotting and the pantsing, as you say, half and half. I I haven't come across many people that have done that. Normally it's one or the other. Yeah, it wasn't really intentional. I basically I was I was on contract with this book. So I was on deadline and I had the first half plotted, but then I couldn't figure out how to get from like the midpoint to the ending And I was like, I'm just going to have to start writing because otherwise I'm going to miss my deadline. So it was kind of a a needs must thing. And then I got to the midpoint. And from there, I I knew the story well enough that I could then get myself to the end. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't really a conscious choice. It was a thing of if I don't start writing now, I'm never going to write it in time. Mm. And this story, we focus on Cynthia and Alex, sort of, I describe it as a friendship under pressure. Was their story a joy to write or was it quite a burden? Yeah, I, I actually, I really enjoyed writing their story because I enjoyed thinking about the life that they would have had before this story. 
Uh, so that they were they've been friends since they were teenagers and they've sort of grown up with each other. And then they've got all of these different things have been thrown at them. They've now got a situation where Cynthia is Alex's boss and their children are dating. And it's just it was really interesting to me to explore how these things could actually affect what's quite a strong friendship and how that could then end up. And um, without giving spoilers, there's a few scenes sort of later on in the book where they talk about their friendship. And I, I really enjoyed writing those scenes because it's just it's a very interesting dynamic, I think. Mm. Were they very visual to you? You say you think see things like a film. Were, were the women very important in your mind? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I really like writing um, flawed characters. So uh, I had a very strong sense of who each of these women were and also um, the police officer who some of our some of the chapters are from her point of view. Um, I have really strong ideas of, of who these people are and why they make the decisions they they make. And, you know, they're not always the good decisions. You know, Alex is kind of the main character, but she's not always making the right decisions. She's not always doing things for the right reasons. And I enjoy that. I, I enjoy sort of exploring why people do the things they do and, and pushing people to sort of the edge of of what they consider right and wrong. And so how do you get your ideas on the characters and the people? Is it again like places you're just making notes of people you meet or are you watching documentaries? You know, because it's people under pressure. Yeah, I, the people, the characters are, are different, really. I don't tend to have a moment where I'm like, oh, this person could be a really good character in a book. I kind of build them out of, you know, experiences that I've had over the years and people I've met over the years. And I'll take a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person. But I don't really have a moment where I think, yes, this is my character that I'm going to base them on. I think they just they build over time. So when I first start writing the book, there'll be a very loose character in my head. I'll have a rough idea of who they are. But it's by the end of the book, that's when I really know them. I get to know them as I write. And so when I then go back and edit, that's when I'll put in all of the, the finer details about who they are and how they speak and how they act. That I, I think it's you've kind of got to write them to get to know them. And do they stay with you afterwards? Have you got a cupboard that you open or there are all these voices shouting at you? <laughs> they kind of do but it's weird I'm having to write so quickly <laughs> because of my deadlines that I I've now just finished the edits for my third book and I'm now starting to write my fourth book so actually talking about all her little lies is a bit strange because it's been it's been a while now since I wrote it and uh, yeah it's they're always there and if I if I start reading it again or I you know I have to do an interview like this I'll I'll sort of remember it really well and I'll, I'll feel like I'm sort of saying hello to an old friend again but yeah it's it is weird when you're then sort of talking about a book that I'm now two books on from that and and sort of getting to know a whole new cast of characters. I'm sure and remembering who's in what and all, all of that as you say especially with conversations like this I mean the book is filled with revelations and there are thrills how did you manage those to make sure that they're sort of dotted throughout the book well I'm hoping that that's kind of like a brand that I'm building is that my books are quite twisty and I, a lot of people do say that they're really twisty and and that is something that I strive for when I'm writing my books just because it's, it's what I enjoy reading what I tend to do is I'll look at each of my chapters when I'm writing and especially when I'm editing 
and I'll make sure that in every single chapter something changes or something sort of happens. There's got to be a point to every single chapter that I write. And if there's not, if I've got a chapter where they're just sort of talking about something but nothing really changes by the end of the chapter, then that's a chapter I need to edit and tweak. The way that that then builds up is that hopefully it ends in quite a fast-paced novel with quite a lot of twists and turns because something is changing in every single chapter. And it could be something quite small or it could be a big sort of revelation or twist. But I do like to sort of pepper them in as much as I can and uh, have the big revelation at the end sort of thing. Mm. How did you get your books published then? I am traditionally published, but it's with a digital first publisher. More and more of them at the moment. And actually it's brilliant. <laughs> they're, they're so great. It's uh, Embla Books is an imprint of Bonnier Books, which is sort of a larger, more traditional publisher. The way that they do it is it's, mainly focused on the ebook and audiobook that's their number one focus and then they also do the paperback as a print on demand which means that you don't have like loads and loads of books sitting in a warehouse somewhere so it's more sort of eco-friendly as well my sales have been absolutely fantastic more than i could ever have hoped for and it's all thanks to the ebook and i've reached so many wonderful readers that i just wasn't anticipating at all all because the ebook has been pushed so much. So rather than sort of meeting a few thousand paperback readers, I'm actually reach, reaching hundreds of thousands of ebook readers, which is fantastic. So it's it's a really interesting way of publishing, and I think that more people should be looking into it because it's it's worked brilliantly for me. Wow, because you might not necessarily think that that approach would work as well but it just shows it does it's yeah. the way it's the way it, it is now there's so many ebook readers yeah exactly and and it is because it's digital first so you can reach those people so much easier than if it was trying to get it into bookstores and things so um yeah no it's I've been really really happy with the approach that that they've done it must be nice have you done book signings and book events yeah, I have. Not as much as I would like to because, well, a mixture of my debut came out in COVID time, so it was much more difficult. And also I have a one-year-old, so <laughs> she makes it... Oh, wow. Yeah, she makes it a little bit difficult for me to get out and do things. But I have done a few lovely events and it's been really, really nice to actually meet people uh, sort of face-to-face. So you you work, you've got your, your main job, you're an author mum of a one-year-old how do you fit your writing in I basically do it in small snatches of time and um, so sometimes I'll be getting up early before the kids and writing at sort of six o'clock in the morning uh, but other times it's a case of okay I've got 20 minutes here I'm gonna write so it's trying not to be quite so precious with my time I would love to be able to say I'm going to sit down for the next two hours and focus on my books but it's just not practical for me at the moment in a few years it might be but right now it's not so if I want to do it I just have to force myself to do it whenever I can so it at the moment it does look like 10 to 20 minute snatches of time and it works for me and it just means that I have a bit more work to do when it comes to editing. So what does writing mean to you? I mean, I'm one of those people who I've wanted to write ever since I was a little girl. In fact, I wrote a short story that got published in my school library <laughs> when I was in primary school. So it's very much always something I've done. But it means everything to me. I mean, I can't not write. Even if I wasn't published, I think I would still write because I... 
I just I have all of these ideas in my head and I have to get them onto paper somehow. And are you happy being in the psychological thriller genre? Is that your that's your lane and you're happy to stay there? It's what I read mostly. So I do love writing psychological thrillers and I think I've got quite a good handle on it now that I, I feel confident in my abilities to write a thriller. Um, I have actually, I, the first novel I ever wrote was a sci-fi, um, which never got published. <laughs> uh, I never even queried oh. it, but I did finish it. It was my first sort of full-length novel. Um, and then I decided to do a thriller instead, just because I felt like I read more thrillers. And so I was sort of better equipped to write a thriller. I wasn't 100% happy with the sci-fi. But yeah, you never know. But maybe one day I might stretch out into other genres. But for now, I'm quite happy. <laughs> And do you get involved with the design of the book, the cover, the title? Yeah, I mean, the title, I've been really lucky that my publishers haven't changed any of my titles. So I've got three books now that um, I came up with the titles and they've been happy with those. The cover, the publisher does handle the cover, but they're really, Embler are very collaborative. So they ask for my ideas, anything that I specifically would like to see on the cover, and then they send it to me and I can give feedback and there can be tweaks made and things. So it's really, it's a lovely partnership that we've got going on. But yeah, they are, they are the experts. So I kind of trust their judgment when it comes to the cover. Oh, that's really good. Well, we come to the last question, Becca, which is very important here. And that is, what is your biscuit of Joyce? What biscuit was powering the writing of all her little lies? Oh, I, I do love a good biscuit. Um, jammy Dodgers. Jammy Dodgers are my jam. <laughs> jammy Dodgers. I don't think we've had that one before. Love it. Are you separating them and eating each bit or are you just, is it just? No, yeah. no, just just shove the whole thing in because if I don't, my one-year-old will <laughs> come and grab it. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Well, just look forward to following you in your career. Becca Day, whose latest book is All Her Little Lies. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So the next book I want to talk to you about is Annie Stanley, All at Sea by Sue Tedden. Now, I came across this book because I posted a photo of one of my mugs. I love my mugs. My mugs are very important to me. The day you see me with a boring mug is the day you know all is not well. I've been kidnapped and I'm being held against my will and being forced to drink from boring cups. There we go. Well, that's, that took a <laughs> took an edge, but anyway. So, one of the mugs I have is it's like a curved mug, and it's got the sea and boats and a lighthouse in it. And somebody, uh, Francis Quinn, had said, "Oh, there's a book that looks like that by Sue Tedden." Sue got in touch. I heard about her book. And I said, yes, please, I would very, very, very much like to read this book. If you are looking for a book that sort of, yes, it's dealing with sad subjects, but it just wraps its arms round you, gives you a hug and does make you laugh as well. Uh, this is this is it. Anyway, let's do the blurb first, shall we? Annie is single unemployed and just a bit stuck when her beloved father dies unexpectedly. Furious at his partner's plans to scatter his ashes somewhere of no emotional significance, Annie seizes the urn and decides to take it on a tour of the 31 sea areas that make up the shipping forecast, which her father loved despite living in landlocked St Albans. Travelling around the British coastline, searching for the perfect place to say goodbye, she starts to wonder if it might be time to rethink her life. 
but is it too late for second chances? Let's do the first few sentences. Chapter one. Becoming cyclonic later. I wake with a start, someone snoring, and it's me. Even as six-pack superheroes are triumphing over evil at an ear-pissing volume on the multiplex screen in front of me, I've managed to nod off with my fist submerged in my popcorn bucket. I love this book. It is just glorious. It's feel-good. It's happy. It's joyful in those sad times. I love the references to the different... Areas, you know, on the Radio 4, you often hear about North at Sierra, South at Sierra and all of that. And it's this is tied into this book in a glorious way. So I found it comforting for that reason. But I just enjoyed the characters, what went on. It's a book I know a lot of people are going to love. It's well written. Yeah, superb. Excellent. Annie Stanley, all at sea, Sue Tedden. Very good. And I'm worried now what book, well, I shouldn't be worried what book I'll be recommended next time I put a photo of a mug on social media. But, you know, it can't be as, it can't be as good as that one again. But who knows? OK, next book is uh, I'm a Fan by Sheena Patel. I'd heard quite a few people raving about this book. So I was like, yeah, I want to read this. And then Lauren and the Books was doing this one as one of her Patreon monthly book clubs. So I thought, right, I'm going to get it. And I've got to be honest, it's 200 pages. And that sounds very appealing to me because I've got a massive book I've got to read soon. And I've got fear of actually getting that done in time. So to have a 200 page book, I was in. It's OK. Well, let's do the blurb. The unnamed narrator of I'm a fan is in a seemingly unequal relationship with the man I want to be with. She is also addicted to cyber stalking the man's other lover, an online influencer she refers to as the woman I am obsessed with. Written with a clear and unforgiving eye, the exhilarating debut explores obsessive love, rage, privilege and power dynamics and heralds Sheena Patel as one of the most exciting and original voices writing fiction today. Let's do first sentences. Do I? I stalk a woman on the internet who is sleeping with the same man as I am. Sometimes when I'm too quick to look at her stories, I block her temporarily so she doesn't know I absentmindedly refresh her page 15 times a minute while Netflix plays in the background on my laptop, my stomach flipping sick with delight when her profile picture is ringed red. <sighs> pros and cons, ups and downs. The ironic thing is I actually read this book and finished it and had things to say for the book club and then I had to go and pick up my son, yes, the musical son, the musical child, returning back from school trip. So that was, that was great. You know, when you've actually read the book, you want to be able to talk about it. I thought it was interesting and unique. I liked the way... They went about how this sort of whole age of influencers and how you can stalk people through their social media and how you think you know someone through social media when actually you might not know them at all. But because it's written in the first person, because it's a brutal book, it made it even more brutal for me. I'd have found it much more comfortable if it was in second, third person. So... Did I enjoy it? No. 
But was it a decent story? Yes. Would I recommend it? I don't know. I, I didn't love it as much as other people seem to. It seems to be a bit of a Marmite book. It was on the long list for the Women's Prize as well. Sadly, it didn't make it onto the short list. But would I have put it on the short list? I don't think I would. It's not. Yeah, it didn't. I, I found it hard going and uh, hard subjects I'm fine with. But yeah, no, it it not a thumbs down not a thumbs up just you know the weird wavering in the middle that sort of one anyway last book and this is where philippa really went wrong so i have read a book a graphic novel a few years ago called the tea dragon society and i loved it i loved it so much it was so comforting and lovely and it's part of a series so i thought right i'm immediately going to get the next in the series and since that time it's been there on my bookshelves and i've looked at it and i i keep thinking oh i can't wait to read that that's going to be so comforting and last night i don't know i was just feeling a bit oh, a bit battered bruised by things so i thought I'm going to get that and have a read of it. So I got it and started reading it and realised I'd actually bought the wrong one. And it's nothing to do with this series I really enjoyed. So there we are. But actually, this was lovely. So it's all good. And it's a standalone. It's a very simple book. Look, if you're going through stuff, I think you'll you'll like this. Yes, there are deep themes. So it's not a children's book, but it's very simple. A lot of pages just have pictures on without any words and some have words but they're very easy to digest so it's glorious it's lovely you read it very quickly so it's uh, I would say if you can get it from the library that would be better because it's you know uh, I, I th well in the it, mine's got the US price on 13 US dollars which is a lot of money for something that you could read in 15 minutes maximum but it could be one that you keep and love. And I do think actually some of the pages are ones I could frame because they are so lovely. Anyway, sorry, blurb. Come on, Philippa, let's focus. We're nearly there. When Lana and her father return to their seaside hometown to help clear the debris of a big storm, Lana remembers how much she's missed the ocean and the strong, reassuring presence of her aunt. As Lana explores a familiar beach, she discovers something incredible, a colony of aquicorns, small magical seahorse-like creatures that live in the coral reef. Lana rescues an injured aquicorn and cares for it with the help of her aunt, who may know more about these strange creatures than she's willing to admit. When a second storm threatens to reach the town, choices made many years ago about how to coexist with the sea start to rise to the surface. Lana realises she will need to find the strength to stand on her own, even when it means standing up to people who she has always relied on to protect her. Now, can I, can I, can I read the first? Well, there's obviously pictures before there are words. No, I don't think I can. I can't read any of this. It just doesn't sound right. It goes with the pictures. It's a very easy book, but it's a lovely one. And it's about, uh, yes, it's about the environment. It's about belonging. It's about being true to yourself relationships all sorts of lovely things it is not the second one in the tea dragon society so now i'm going to have to go off and find that and then when i get it will i have it on my bookshelves for another few years who knows but it is lovely so make of that what you will what books have we talked about today who knows i don't know let's come on philippa 
we had the very impressive Scoops by Sam McAllister. And Sam very kindly joined us to talk about that book. And it's just out in paperback now. We also heard from Becca Day, whose latest book is All Her Little Lies. Then we had Annie Stanley, All at Sea by Sue Tedden. I'm a Fan by Sheena Patel and Aquicorn Cove by Katie O'Neill. Those are your books. That's that's all I've got for you. Now, if I get myself organised, and I sincerely hope I do, there will be a special on Friday about a non-fiction book that is so important in this day and age that... Yeah, people really need to know about this book. And it's become a bit of a passion of mine to get this book out there. It's something quite incredible. But anyway, more of that on Friday. So you may be lucky or unlucky, depending on how you view it, to get two episodes this week. We'll see if the stars align and make it happen. Anyway, if not, or whatever, I'll be back next Monday with more books to talk to you about. Just look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 